0: This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. From our offices overlooking New York's Riverside Park, this is the Commonweal Podcast. Commonweal contributing writer John Gehring is here with a wrap up of November's meeting of the U.S. bishops in Baltimore. Our literary columnist Anthony Domestico interviews poet Katie Ford about her new collection, If You Have to Go. I speak with longtime New York Times writer Dan Barry about his collection of reported essays, This Land. And senior editor Matthew Budway moderates an exchange on cultural appropriation between contributor Rand Richards Cooper and our intern, Nicole Ann Lobo. This is the Commonwealth Podcast. I'm here with Commonweal contributing writer John Gehring to talk about the meeting of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops that was held in Baltimore in mid-November. While the bishops were gathering, John also wrote a column for the New York Times headlined, Catholic Church Reforms Should Begin With Bishops. And John, I just want to say thanks for being here.
1: Great to be here, Dominic. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm wondering if you could give me a general recap of the meeting. Uh, obviously, you know, the news that came out of it and that most people are sort of focusing on is the note that came from the Vatican, the instructions that came from the Vatican not to vote on protocols uh, in regards to how to handle clerical sex abuse. So what was what was going on? What what actually happened at that moment?
1: Well, you know, as you point out, that was a pretty dramatic moment. I think there was a lot of anticipation for this meeting you know, after what many have called the summer of shame with the the grand jury report of the attorneys general coming out in Pennsylvania with that major report and, you know, the former Cardinal, uh, former Archbishop of D.C., Cardinal Carrick, uh, the scandals there. So expectations are very high. And so they were supposed to vote on a, a number of proposals that would address the issue of you know, how do we hold bishops accountable? Which has really been the missing link since the two thousand two Dallas meeting when the Charter came out. So there's all this anticipation and then Cardinal Donardo, the head of the conference, gets up and says, the Vatican has just asked us not to vote. And there was a lot of anguish, a lot of frustration. Even Cardinal Donardo in the first press conference said he was very frustrated, and bishops that I talked to said that. And so, you know, the first wave of stories were quite negative in a sense, you know, nothing happened. And really nothing of concrete action happened over a course of several days.
2: Yeah, I
0: think uh, one of the things I th- saw that came out of it was the bishops overwhelmingly voted in favor of a pastoral letter against racism, which I think, well, is that actually newsmaking at this point?
1: Well, exactly. And I think it sort of underscores the big challenge that the bishops have in public life right now. They finally get around after three, four decades, this is the first time they've actually issued a pastoral letter letter on racism since, I believe, the Carter right. administration, and a lot of on race matters since then, and that got completely drowned out, and now the question is, you know, will their voices be heard on these kind of pressing issues in public life when they can't seem to get on the same page around the abuse crisis? I think there was a lot of unanimity around that we need to tackle this mm-hmm. with urgency. There was a lot of disagreement over the cause of the crisis, and then specifically what do we do now?
0: John, what do you make of, you know, some of the, you know, people trying to sort of divine the signals that came that that this might have portended? Like who was behind this instruction not to vote on the protocols and what other subterfuge might have been at play or not? Uh, there seemed to be the kind of usual sort of conspiracy mongering. What about that?
1: It's a very interesting question because I think a lot of reporters and and even bishops, frankly, are trying to understand this. And, you know, when Cardinal Donardo announced it from the floor at the start of the meeting, he didn't really explain why the Vatican had asked and when we talk about when we say the Vatican here this specifically came from the congregation for bishops at the Vatican so you know specifically there and it wasn't until he was asked by a reporter that it came up that you know the Vatican again the the bishops congregation had had some concerns over the language being too generic and essentially not thinking these protocols were strong enough or that they would have real canonical authority and also there there is the question of having everyone on the same page in terms of the global church. So there's going to be a meeting at the Vatican in February where all of the presidents of bishops' conferences from around the world will take this issue up. And I think, you know, some of the reporting from from veteran Vatican journalists said, look, Pope Francis in the Vatican doesn't want the American church to sort of go piecemeal here or get out ahead of the global church on this. And so that seems to be what was afloat there in terms of the reasons for sending this directive.
0: Ross Douthat, in his column uh, on uh, Sunday, November 18th, characterized the meeting as a fiasco. Is that how you saw it too, or is that how you?
1: you No, I don't know if I would use that term. I've been to about a dozen of these meetings over the years, both as staff when I worked there and covering it and as an analyst. And I would say, you know, certainly the rug was pulled out from under the meeting immediately. And I think that guaranteed sort of negative headlines coming out of it. You know, whether it was a fiasco, it's certainly... I think underscored the fact that the Vatican and the American Episcopacy, the lines of communication uh, at the very least need to be approved because the idea that the U.S. bishops got these recommendations to the Vatican very late. The Vatican had to put the brakes on it quickly. I mean, that is a PR disaster what came out of it. I think over the course of the days, in terms of maybe some of the good news, is that, you know, look, in some ways you could read this as the Vatican saving the American bishops from themselves because it became clear after a couple of days that there was not – unanimity on these proposals. And so it also would have been a bad headline if they would have voted on this stuff and voted it down. And so it gave the conference a chance to, they still debated some of these measures and they talked about it. And so the real question is now is what happens in February at the Vatican. And I would say that the stakes are higher than ever there, because if something doesn't come out very concrete out of that meeting, then we keep, you know, this narrative continues that the church just cannot tackle this problem. And that, and I think that is just incredibly damaging for the church's credibility, which is already so damaged.
0: Uh, John, you know, the, the, the point of your New York Times column was that the reforms have to begin with the bishops. But, you know, how— open or capable are they of discussing some of the thorny issues you mentioned when they are sort of facing this real crisis of legitimacy at the, at the meeting north cardinal joseph tobin said he experienced the sense himself that the bishops have lost their credibility in his own ministry and even from listening to his the other bishops and, and it made him wonder as he said as bad as the events and revelations of the summer were what was there before if their credibility could be lost so quickly
1: Right. And I think part of the point of my piece was to say, look, the bishops have lost credibility not only because of uh, sexual predation and, and the inability to police themselves around the abuse crisis. But also, I think it's time, and I, I understand that this is a sort of a big question, and it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. But I do think we need to think more deeply about sort of a patriarchal culture, the exclusion of women, what this sort of pool of, you know, sort of narrowing the pool of candidates for the priesthood, for example, I, I just think we need to be asking those big questions. And I think honestly, you know, if anyone's going to save this church right now, it's going to be the laity, not the bishops. And some of the bishops actually, I think, really do acknowledge that. The question is, and this came up as part of the debate, how much power do you concede to the laity right now? I think there is sort of general agreement that we need more lay involvement. And that's been a drumbeat for many years now. That's not new. But what does lay involvement actually mean? When really, bishops really only answer to the Pope. And, and, you know, even the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops doesn't have any canonical authority over bishops, right? And so that question of what does lay involvement look like, what is going to be put on the table in terms of reform and renewal moving forward, those are big questions that are, that are tough to answer.
0: You know, that uh, leads me to a a different kind of question. Maybe I can ask you to sort of try to address this. Uh, uh, Kathleen Cavaney of Boston College, uh, who is also a Commonweal contributor, recently said uh, she believes there's been a kind of paradigm shift in how Catholics view the scandal. It was once perceived as the crimes of a small and disturbed group of clerics, but it became clear that the problem is widespread and even global with a similar narrative from country to country. And As a result. Catholics began seeing it as a systemic problem of tolerated and accepted crime. And if that's the case, then a great many presumptions about who we are as Catholics and what the church as an institution mean are called into question. What are ordinary Catholics here in the United States, especially, but all all over the world? what What are ordinary Catholics supposed to do in this regard?
1: I think to the point of that paradigm shift, I think it's exactly right. And, and you know, to an extent, I've, I've felt that way myself trying to understand why it feels so different now than it did, you know, back when this exploded into the national consciousness in Boston. I think the Pennsylvania report for a lot of people that, you know, that was such a sweeping report that covered, I believe, seven decades. You know, I think there was a sense that we had turned a bit of a corner on this or at least gotten... A hold of it to some extent, and clearly that is, is, is not the case. Although, you know, bishops point out, and in many ways rightly so, that, you know, the number of abuse cases has dropped dramatically in recent years after the 2002 charter, but what they never solved was the bishops' accountability piece. But yeah, I mean, I think to that point, it is a systemic and institutional problem. And I think, you know, Pope Francis has named it well. This is about a clerical culture. This isn't really about sex. It's about abuse of power. It's about privilege. It's about seeing bishops as a special caste set apart. And that needs to end.
0: John, I want to get back to your New York Times column, because in the last paragraph, I think you make a good point in reminding readers Uh, that change coexists with and indeed emerges from tradition. Uh, Maybe you could spend a minute on that idea and envisioning what might lie ahead uh, in this regard.
1: Sure. And that seems in many ways to be a heart of the struggle over the Francis papacy. You know, you have some conservative Catholics who think that the Pope is trying to uh, rec, uh, trying to change the church, you know, quote unquote, change the church in, in a direction that is not in keeping with Catholic teaching. But the reality is, in terms of the history of the church, there has always been transition within the church tradition. There has always been reform and renewal. I mean, we saw it at the Second Vatican Council. We've, saw, we've seen it in other cases. And so So this idea that the church can't read the signs of the times, can't develop doctrine, as sort of the theologians put it, is simply wrong. And I think it's, you know, again, this is part of what I think Francis is calling for in terms of a deeper discernment about the life of the church. You know, he doesn't simply say we need a change of policies or structures. We need a conversion within the heart of the church to think more deeply about these questions.
0: Right. And uh, I I think those are good points, John. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk. I guess we'll be looking ahead to see what happens in February. Those who are listening can come to the Commonweal website to read more from John Goering on how the U.S. bishops might proceed from here. John, thanks for your time. Thank you, Dominic. Tuesday, November 27th is Giving Tuesday, a global occasion for supporting the nonprofit organizations that are most important to you. We hope Commonwealth is among them. Commonwealth's tradition of hosting civil reasoned debate has helped shape the conversation around religion, politics, and culture for almost a century. Your support will not only help us champion these matters in our pages, but will also allow us to amplify your voice by extending these discussions to your local community. So when Giving Tuesday starts, Please support Commonweal. And if you don't want to wait, you can be ahead of the curve and make your donation now at cwlmag.org givingtuesday. And uh, if you're listening to this after Giving Tuesday, remember that you can always make a contribution to Commonweal at our donate page. Poems in Katie Ford's fourth collection, If You Have to Go, implore their audience, the divine and the human, for attention, for revelation, and perhaps above all, for companionship. Our literary columnist, Anthony Domestico, spoke with Katie recently about the poems in the book, including the sonnet sequence at its heart. It's a great conversation, and hearing Katie read her work, as
2: you will, really provides a sense of what poetry can do. Have a listen. If we could start by talking about the epigraph that you've chosen to lead the reader into your collection with, and it's your own translation of a line from Augustine's Confessions, and it reads, whither can the heart go from the heart?
3: I had read Augustine a long time ago, but this portion to me, you know, he's in, he has a kind of deep conflict at the moment of this utterance. And he's just, he's articulating, I think, that you can't actually flee from yourself or what is going on internally. And I did, you know, I did t- several translations to see kind of where I wanted to land. And I liked kind of the archaic sound of, of wither. Yeah. Um, but I also liked the plain spokenness of every other word and the one syllable, monosyllabic rendering of the rest. So... You know, Augustine also is really one of the best um, memoirs that we have. Yeah,
2: of course, um,
3: yeah. I'm going to Augustine in the places where he is trying very hard to feel differently than he does feel. There's a passage near it where he he says, um, I thought if only I would take a hot bath, I would feel better. Uh-huh. And then he then he takes a hot bath and he says, but I didn't. <laughs> I didn't feel better. So there's. it's just a very human portion of Augustine where he's not talking about belief right there. He's he's talking about not being able to flee oneself. And so you have to instead investigate and listen kind of to the in, internal ongoings um, of the heart.
2: Yeah. And, and a lot of the, the issues that you've touched on there and that Augustine touches on, of aloneness, interior experience, the desire, but also the impossibility of escaping from the self are also expressed in the book's first poems, In the Hearth. So I wondered if you wouldn't mind uh, giving the listeners a a feel for for the book by reading that first poem in the collection, In the Hearth.
3: Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll just say, because listeners might not have the book in front of them, that the poem is spoken from the perspective of iron that is being forged. Mm-hmm. So um I'll just say that to begin with. In the hearth. Of life's abundant confusions, this does not partake. My body gripped stiff at length by a smith I cannot see. Alone, not alone, my faceless smith. If I could speak from the forge, I'd want to beg you not to stop, not to feel the guilt of your injurious labor. I know my labor, and whatever shape my body now is bent to, it returns me to that labor. I don't think when I return, I will have a story. Three things I shall say. I knew I was not entirely alone. When I could speak again, it was from a bath of cool water. But first, I was kept a long time in a flame. And so I was scared to be in my body, in the same way one fears a particular house. Perhaps I should move my body, I'd think. But movement is oftentimes prevented, though knowledge of the exact encumbrance is not permitted. Felt, yes, but not defined. Contoured, but not traceably so. Yet my body extends itself outward, It is now the house, the rooftop, the lake, and lotus. This is not good news. This is not beauty. I am everywhere, and the fear, when it desires to grow, grows continental, drifting, torn, submerged. And so I ask my body for another house. But the body worsens under the extremity of the request. Saddening further, like corners of a fabric sack, burying the very most of the stones. Whatever my body now is bent to, I don't want to have a story.
2: Thank you. That's really lovely. I'm wondering, so many of the figures and ideas from that poem, so the body as a kind of home, the sack weighed down with stones, which reminds me of certain passages, where the kingdom comes with stones in its pockets in the addresses section, mm-hmm. uh, the problem, maybe even the kind of impossibility of defining what is felt, all of those ideas recur later in the book. And I'm wondering if you knew from the start that this would be the book's first poem, where it came in the composition of the collection as a whole, or how you decided to use that as the kind of frame leading into, in particular, the long sonnet sequence that, that we'll talk about in just a bit.
3: Mm-hmm so i first began with the sonnets writing the sonnets mm-hmm. so the composition began with those and i started writing them about 4 years ago in 2014 and sometimes when i felt like a poem just couldn't occur in the sonnet form but had the same themes or um because it was being you know written in the same time of my life i mm-hmm. would take a break from the sonnets and write something different some of those poems are in the book some just ended up not being cohesive with this book at all so mm-hmm. i i think in the hearth if i remember correctly like somewhere mid range like maybe a mm-hmm. year into writing the sonnets i started writing this poem or maybe a little sooner and then and that's how other poems in the the uh, third and fourth section occurred mm-hmm. as well so
2: mm-hmm. in your works there's a really interesting way in which we can see your poetry doing similar but also quite distinct kind of investigation from theology, trying to say the unsayable without saying it in such a way that it will no longer be the unsayable, if that makes sense.
3: Right. And that's the <laughs> that's the really circular route, or not route, but it it's a circle of where you do say something and then it but the sayings, like what we might articulate about the invisible realm, I guess, or God, um, whatever language someone might want to use or the soul, even we keep trying and the trying isn't wrongheaded. Um, mm-hmm. But our beliefs about those sayings, I think can be very harmful and wrongheaded um, mm-hmm. when we think actually our sayings have a kind of correctness. So mm-hmm. um, in terms of my own biography, my first book, Deposition, there is a kind of, I wrote that, wrote that in my early 20s. It's kind of a feisty, um, upset reaction in a way to uh, American evangelical Christianity, which I kind of mm-hmm. dipped into almost accidentally, actually, because I was so naive about all the different forms of Christianity and in my early college years. So I went to Harvard then really to study the, the intellectual. Reasons for why I felt intuitively like this was a form that had too much to say, you know, that mm-hmm, said mm-hmm. too many things in concrete ways, and what that does actually to a life, not to all lives. I mean, you have to be careful with, uh, you can't just throw a whole tradition kind of away. There are forms that are very fruitful, and my experience was not that way. So, I, um, so, deposition I wrote kind of against it. And Mm -hmm. then I've been, in some ways, religious language has always occurred to me authentically and sincerely in, Mm -hmm. in the poems I wrote in my second and third book. Although I might not, I don't think those books really seem like they're spoken by a, a poet who has, who's Christian, Mm -hmm. which is a word also, I I'm kind of neither, happy or unhappy to use, but you know, Uh it depends on the audience. Like if I were to call myself that I would want to explain it for quite a long time and talk to someone about it kind of deeply, but I still engage those terms because not just to kind of hoist in a kind of power because, Uh but I'm aware I'm doing that as well. You know, you, you import a lot when you use religious language, but but I think it also indicates a heightened human experience sometimes. And, and in mm-hmm. the end, I do feel that I believe in something and not nothing, which mm-hmm. might be as much as I can say theologically. Um, but orientation mm-hmm. toward that something I think continually needs to be one of um, reverence for not being able to say what it is. Mm-hmm. And I, it it occurs to me that that kind of thinking works can work very well for any religious temperament from any tradition and many traditions have Mm -hmm. that in it. It's just, uh, it's not always Mm -hmm. located, but if that kind of agreement were made, I think we could talk a lot better to others who are practitioners of other traditions or atheists, um, or agnostics. Mm -hmm. So, so I think it's a helpful position, but I also believe it.
2: Mm -hmm what was it about the sonnet form that that drew you in for this particular project
3: well i think the sonnet form in particular not the crown in specific but the the mm-hmm. sonnet is really a little system of logic that's articulated mm. lyrically and musically so the you know every quatrain because i'm using the english sonnet every quatrain has to mm-hmm. kind of be on the move it can't repeat how it's argued itself so for instance you can't use in three quatrains the same image of for instance like a tree you have to Mm -hmm. you have to shift that's one of the yeah that's one of the rules and it's a really great rule for keeping a poem dynamic dynamic and for momentum to keep going and so also what i'm always drawn to about the sonnet is that it turns and it it turns and looks back at itself. So the couplet looks at all the logic that's just occurred and then either contorts mm-hmm. it or agrees more with it or threatens, or, mm-hmm. you know, in the case of Shakespeare, it might be, it might be wit. It could be comedy. It could be, he also, I mean, Shakespeare are very often is very authoritarian in his couplet, mm-hmm. but I found the couplet. Mm-hmm. My normal thinking about the couplet is just our minds as modern thinkers doesn't, lend itself to the couplet because the couplet wants to kind of boss someone around and, you know, and, and say <laughs> something with a lot of clarity. Yeah.
2: yeah I, so just despite, you know, the collection's resistance to a kind of neat story and despite your resistance to a neat story, I thought that we might end with you reading the the collection's final poem, All I Ever Wanted, uh, which you connected to Psalm forty, which is also again a lovely poem, one of my favorites. But I think all I ever wanted is is an interesting bookend for, for the collection, in part because it picks up a lot of the the images from well from the collection as a whole, but also from in the hearth. So the opening poem sets us right in the midst of fire, and this final poem ends with fire, but those common elements are are kind of played in a very different way. Key in this in this final oh, yeah. poem. I hadn't noticed um, the
3: fire returning. Yeah. <laughs> you're a good reader. You're a better <laughs> reader than I am. <laughs> My own <uncle. laughs> Um But sometimes, you know, these images are just—they do recur, and you're not—you're not totally aware, and that—that's just indicating their their authenticity and importance. I think. So yeah, yeah, I can read this um, in closing, and
2: yeah, that'd be great. All
3: right, all I ever wanted. When I thought it was right to name my desires, what I wanted of life, they seemed to turn like bleeding sheep, not to me, who could have been a caring, if unskilled shepherd, but to the boxed-in hills, beyond which the blue mountains sloped down with poppies, orange as crayfish, all the way to the Pacific seas, in which the hulls of whales steered them in search of a mate for whom they bellowed in a new highly particular song we might call the most ardent articulation of love the pin at the tip of evolution modestly shining in the middle of my life it was right to say my desires but they went away i couldn't even make them out not even as dots now in the distance yet i see the small lights of winter campfires in the hills. Teenagers in love often go there for their first nights, and each yellow-white glow tells me what I can know and admit to knowing that all I ever wanted was to sit by a fire with someone who wanted me in measure the same to my wanting. To want to make a fire with someone, with you, was all
2: Katie, thank you so much for sharing that poem and this book with us and for chatting with me today.
3: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
4: Commonweal is the leading independent Catholic journal of public affairs, religion, literature, and the arts. We offer a number of subscription options, Log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the subscribe link.
0: From the radical power of poetry to the power of journalistic witness. Reporter Dan Barry spent more than a decade crisscrossing the United States chronicling the ordinary lives and extraordinary moments for his regularly running column in the New York Times, called This Land. About a hundred of these standalone dispatches have now been collected in a hardcover book of the same name, supplemented with images from award-winning New York Times photographers. I talk today not only about the book, which I highly recommend, but also about the importance of journalism, local and otherwise, and what it's like to be called an enemy of the people by the President of the United States. Let's talk about This Land, which was uh, just published in the fall. It's a really beautiful book, compiling dozens of columns from 10 years writing the this land column for the New York Times. How did the project come about, and how did the book end up coming about?
4: About 15 years ago, I was writing the storied About New York column for the New York Times, and uh, it was really a dream job. In the course of that, uh, Hurricane Katrina occurred devastating the Gulf Coast. And I prevailed upon my editors to uh, send me down there. And so I spent a lot of time in New Orleans and along the Gulf Coast chronicling what had happened. And it kind of broadened my worldview beyond the five boroughs. And I, I guess it filled me with some wanderlust. And so when I came back, the national editors and I got together and said, well, what if we tried to do an About New York like column for the entire nation, it was crazy. I was working uh, with the great photographer Angel Franco, and every Monday morning, pretty much we would begin our week at Newark International Airport and fly to New Mexico or to California or to Indiana and um, find some story that we thought could be epiphanic in some way and then we would come back maybe on the Thursday or the Friday and I would write the column and Franco would file his photographs and then on Saturday I would begin looking for where might we go on Monday and I would say geez we were in New England last week why don't we try to go to the Midwest this week and also there there was all sorts of calculations in my head not only making sure that we moved around the country but also, that the types of stories, the types of columns changed,
0: would you ha- you'd have an idea of where you might want to head or who you might want to talk to, and how did these ideas come to you How, how did they come to your attention
4: you know i've been a reporter now uh, for thirty five years or more, and what it, I think the challenge for me and for any reporter, quite frankly is to remain ever curious. I would say, geez, I haven't been to Iowa lately. I haven't been to New Mexico ever. What's going on there? And so what I would do is go to the newspaper websites of these states, and then if, say, it was uh, Illinois, I wouldn't go to the website for the Chicago Tribune. I would go to a much smaller newspaper, maybe the paper in, uh, let's say, Champaign or, or Peoria, and then, even then, I would look at the headlines, I suppose, but I would begin to look at the community briefs, the little news briefs, the police blotter, and just to get a sense of the chatter of a community and see if there was something that I could tease out.
0: Sure. You know, it leads me kind of to my next question. You know, your, your columns are compact, yet at the same time, they're really quite capacious in what they expressed about human nature, about the United States, about a lot of things. Do they begin as much longer pieces that then you have to whittle down?
4: There's a lot of blood on the floor. Yeah. (laughs) What happens is usually I will try five, six, or a dozen different attempts at a beginning to the story. Because I believe that, particularly in newspaper journalism, the reader is giving me maybe five or six seconds before he or she will move on to the next story. What I try to do, Dominic, is try to create topspin so that if I've grabbed you in the first paragraph or two with this nonfiction short story, that you will that enough topspin will be created in the writing so that you will join me all the way to the end. So in the writing process, I would whittle it down, whittle it down and kill my darlings, as they say, until it was compact, had a, an enticing beginning and a satisfying end. Or that was my goal. I'm not saying I always achieved it, but that's what I was shooting
0: for. I've got a few favorites from the book, and I hope you don't mind if I ask you about a couple of them. One was uh, headlined, Death in the Chair, Step by Remorseless Step. It was written in 2007. It was about the electrocution of a confessed murderer in Tennessee. Could you talk a little bit about that piece?
4: Sure. I really feel strongly the mission of the journalist to bear witness, to bear witness. I have no particular desire to see someone else die. In fact, I have no desire, really, except I felt the duty, really, to witness an execution because people were being killed in my name, effectively, and in the name of of our country. And so um, I applied to (laughs) – there were several executions that were in the – in the offing, and I applied to attend uh, several in different states, and Tennessee was uh, the first to say, yes, we have a seat for you. And uh, normally, an execution these days would be by lethal injection. And that's a controversial manner of death, but that was the norm at the time. But the fellow who was about to be executed in Nashville, his crime had occurred long enough ago that he was given the option of manner of death that was available at the time of the commission of his crime. And that included uh, the electric chair. And he opted for the electric chair, which I hadn't counted on. And so, you know, with great dread, we went down to Nashville. And a week before his scheduled execution, Angel Franco, uh, the photographer, and I spent some time with him to get to know him. I thought I owed him at least that. If I were to write about his death, I should know him a little bit in life. And we wrote a piece about that. And then the following week, almost to the day, I returned and I witnessed his electrocution. And then uh, it, was, it was early in the morning. It was about one o'clock in the morning. I went back to my uh, hotel room and uh, I, had a, I had a glass of bourbon. And uh, then uh, the next day I began to write it. And, you know, I thought that the way to write it to tell you that I'm against capital punishment and to get all preachy about it would do a disservice to the moment. It would be way more powerful to strip away the language to kind of a, the naked truth of it. And so I wrote what I saw and, uh, you know, there were biblical moments because um, the, the uh, corrections officers had to get on their hands and knees and wash his uh, effectively wet his ankles to improve the, the, the you know the conductivity. It reminded me of the washing of the feet, and then you know they they electrocute him, and there's no there's no ceremony there's no nothing uh, you know you're sitting there kind of stunned by what you've just seen, and then over the loudspeaker in this little room it basically says the time of death 125. Please exit. And you'd stand up, and you walked out. And I went right for my bourbon. Sadly,
0: I've mentioned a couple of the pieces I've liked, and and I'm wondering if they're uh, what which of them maybe stuck out for you a little more than others. I guess um, uh,
4: an example of the kind of story that I'd be interested in that perhaps nobody else would be interested in is uh, seeing a community brief story in the Omaha, Nebraska paper about a small town called Hupper, maybe a couple of thousand people. And it's one of these places that used to be a place. And recently, the Department of Transportation had constructed a bypass. And so the the main highway was now bypassing entirely the small town of Hupper. And so that kind of intrigued me because in this small uh, news brief that I came across, the town had chipped in to build an obelisk, you know, uh, like a 25 foot tall obelisk that they would plant beside the bypass with the name of their town spelled down the central column, H-O-O-P-E-R. And it was, to me, it was a way of a town of a people saying, you know, as, as we move forward into the 21st century and, and things are moving so quickly and changing so rapidly, here was a little place saying, no, we're still here. We're still here. Uh, we still matter. And I broke that story <laughs> because no one, else, <laughs> no one else would write it or, or would think to write it. But I thought there was a moment in a, in a small town building this, this monument out of pride, I suppose, but rightful pride.
0: How do you feel about that, having been in journalism for for so many years? And what do you think the state of journalism is and, and where are things headed in this regard?
4: Right. So as, as I said earlier, I'm a, I'm a newspaper journalist, for better or worse. We have so much information available to us and very, very easily with a tap here and a click there. We have the world before us. That's great. But on the other hand... And this has meant a decline in local journalism in local newspaper journalism. There's a real downside to this, and that is an informed public about local politics. When I worked at small newspapers, it was standard that around election time, every candidate for the board of Education or for the town council would come in and be grilled by the managing editor and uh, a round table of reporters and the Q&A or the, the story would appear in the newspaper at the same length for that person's opponent. And then the newspaper may or may not make some kind of recommendation, but uh, if you disagreed with the newspaper's editorial on that race, at least you had a Q&A that allowed you to read what this candidate stood for. So now that those newspapers are going away, and they are going away, and they're being bought up by investors, uh, hedge funds and the like. And what they're doing is they're, they're sapping those newspapers of their revenue and of their purpose. And and that's, that's something that needs to be reconciled. And I don't see any solution as
0: yet. We actually have a sitting president of the United States on a more or less daily basis demonizing the press. I mean, to me, this really does great damage to our civic life. As a journalist, and maybe in speaking with other journalists and colleagues, what do, what do you make of this? To this? This strikes me as a very potentially dangerous moment.
4: It is a dangerous moment. And, and, you know, it wasn't long ago that a gunman opened fire in a newsroom in Maryland and killed several people. And if you're in daily journalism, I guarantee that you know a person who knew one of the people who was killed. And so I do. Uh, I'm very close friends with someone who knew several of those people who who were killed that day. So it's very raw and it's very familial. That's one. Whether you can make the connection that the president's language is allowing for that, you know, I think an argument could be made. When he refers to the likes of me as uh, an enemy of the people, I struggle with this. Uh, Obviously, I don't see myself as an enemy of the people. I don't kiss my daughter in the morning and say, "Well, I'm off to my job as an enemy of the people." Uh, Good luck in your math class today. You know, but uh, by the same token, if I begin to like obsess over what the president is saying to me, like some schoolyard bully, I don't want to lose focus of what my central mission is, which is to continue to inform which is to continue to illuminate, which is to continue to point out when a politician says something that is absolutely false, that I point that out, that that is false. What that person just said in our name in that office is false. That's what I need to focus on rather than whether my feelings are hurt by being called an enemy of the people, though I do understand it, is, uh, it enters dangerous terrain. And, and may incite people to to violence. I think about, am I an enemy of the people? But by the same token, am I a friend of the people? I struggle with that thought. And so what I landed on is I am of the people. I am of the people. And I am trying to inform the people as best as I can with my limited skills and with the, with the newspapers. Looking to connect with like-minded people to discuss the pressing issues at the intersection of faith and contemporary politics and culture? Check out our Commonweal local communities. Log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the communities link.
0: A pair of online posts at Commonweal on cultural appropriation have spurred a renewed discussion on when, what, or even whether an artist or writer can borrow from another culture or group for his or her own endeavors. Here, senior editor Matthew Budway moderates a discussion between the authors of those posts, our contributing writer, Rand Richards Cooper, and our intern, Nicole Ann Lobo. Their talk takes off from the infamous comments on cultural appropriation from Lionel Shriver, but it soon moves into a host of other examples, including first-hand accounts from each of them on how they've personally confronted and have been confronted with the fraught notion of cultural appropriation.
5: I thought we'd start maybe by just presenting the, the question of cultural appropriation in the terms that you presented. And you write in, in that second piece of yours that the basic idea of cultural appro- appropriation is that the artifacts, styles, or modes of expression constitute possessions of the cultures that develop them, and that they're used by artists or performers who don't belong to those groups. The truth is that every nation has its own particular raw spots reflecting past offenses by the powerful against the dispossessed. And in the United States, the rawest of our history of racist exploitation is against black people. So, Rand, um, why why is this, first of all, a subject that you, as you point out, you've uh, written more than one piece about this now, why uh, does it strike you as particularly important uh, at this moment?
6: Well, so I was, I was interested in this topic as part of the evolving campus culture of speech and uh, and related concepts, the safe spaces, microaggressions, uh, triggering, and so on. But but second, you know, I'm a fiction writer. I used to be. I still am a little bit. And it, it occurred to me that some of the things that I've written might be fall afoul of certain ideas of uh, cultural appropriation and that made me wonder oh you know if i write from the point of view uh, of an african person for instance am i doing something i shouldn't be doing so there's a very personal dimension of this i suppose for me as a writer when i first wrote about this topic two years ago it was after the novelist the american novelist lionel shriver gave a pretty notorious talk in australia in which she took on the concept of cultural appropriation. Yes. And, and, and Shriver, the notorious part, in the middle of this, she took out, she was responding to some criticisms of a bunch of like college frat boys at Bowdoin or something, who at a party had put on sombreros, and they had been accused of being culturally very insensitive, which I'm sure they were being, Uh, and in the middle of her presentation, she pulled out a sombrero and put it on, Mm -hmm. whereupon a number of writers got up and walked out. Uh, And a a Sudanese writer later on called Shriver's talk, a celebration of the unfettered exploitation of the experiences of others under the guise of fiction.
5: I think that brings us to uh, Nicole Ann's uh, response to your piece. Which appeared not long ago at the Commonweal website, uh, Nicole, and you write Cooper's suggestion that adopting elements of some cultures is akin to mere borrowing assumes that the relationship between influenced and influencer is neutral, when in fact it is imbalanced. Could you say more about that?
7: Definitely. When I was writing my piece, I had to really try to get to the root of what kind of makes it feel uncomfortable in the first place. I think kind of what it came down to, what it came down to for me is that there are multiple levels of filtration that go on in our thought processing and in our communication with other people. So no matter like how powerful an encounter you may have had with somebody, no matter how intimate you may perceive it to be, somebody will never be able to actually fully represent their own narrative to you And then for you to go and try to represent their narrative on your own terms, there are like like several layers of sort of glossing over or kind of maybe narrative skewing that take place. It comes down to the power imbalance of who's getting to speak on behalf of who. And I don't think you'll disagree with me that, you know, like white people in America have always kind of had the upper hand. Like they've always been able to have their voices heard more than black people, for sure. Like you mentioned that that's definitely like the raw spot in American cultural history. Like the story itself, I'm not really necessarily talking about your story, but a lot of times these stories that are like so compelling um, really touch us because of how painful they are, how raw they are. And um, when somebody, like, when a white artist is profiting off of somebody else's pain, I think that there is a level of appropriation and like necessary anger that comes out of that as well.
6: So I guess the the first thing I would say to that is that some of the ethical implications that you bring up are they're they're just they're endemic to the very undertaking of writing of writing fiction at all I think you have a strange dream that you're of, of beauty or a <laughs> um, tragedy um, or, or laughter or pain that you're you're trying to make happen through the magic of words on a page and uh, and so you it's there's a certain exploitation of other people's experiences that that inheres in that in that very undertaking no matter you know no matter who it is out there and of course of of course that experience is skewed i mean another word for skewed is in that sense is is that it's it's kind of filtered to, to use your term through your through your own vision and you know and your own understanding now there are plenty of people i would never write about and that's because i have assessed the limits of my own imagination which can be sadly puny in some places and and I can't get there, I can't go there. It's beyond my abilities to do that. Mm-hmm. For a fiction writer, every character you take on is it's like a foreign country that you have to enter into and then really settle down until you hear its sounds and figure out how
7: it works. Sure, uh, I I think that's a very fair point. And- That's something that I was thinking about a lot when I was writing my response as well. Like the whole act of writing fiction is kind of predicated on like trying to enter the viewpoints of other people's lives who we probably like the only viewpoint we can ever truly understand is our own. But I think this kind of goes back to the point I was trying to make about power imbalances where it's true that the whole art of like writing fiction is kind of like depends on entering into other people's perspectives and borrowing them for this greater like mission of creating good art. But at the end of the day, like these are very real problems that our world faces and like the whole act of like even being able to portray somebody else's story kind of comes with the privilege of being able to to have an audience that's willing to listen to what you have to say in the first place. And when it's like the kind of glossed over fancier narrative of a person who's in a position of power or of privilege, it like ruffles some feathers.
6: Well this this is where I think you and I in our in our respective articles were focusing on different aspects of this problem. And you were taking, you're taking a larger and more structural view of the conditions and the uh, the systemic conditions in which cultural productions of various kinds take place. And I was focusing for the most part more narrowly on what constitutes an artist's challenge in taking on a, a particular topic. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but part of what I get from your response is that there has been for, you know, in very obvious ways for a very long time, sort of gross imbalance in terms of who actually gets to bring things to market and profit from them.
7: Mm-hmm.
6: Whether we're talking about now to sort of enlarge the just to broaden the framework a little bit not just about literature but we talked about about food and 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 restaurants and and uh, and who when cultural blendings and borrowings go on mm-hmm. who, who gets to be in charge of that process and who gets to profit from it right you know probably one of the reasons as i said that i felt emboldened to uh, write the story that i wrote all those years ago was that i had spent two years living in places in Africa where I was almost every day the only white person mm-hmm. and you know that that's not an experience that falls into the lap of very many middle class white 23 year olds and I, I think it was helpful in that regard but you know some of the topics that come up that are illuminated these days in sort of pop culture and, for, and, and I think pop culture is where a lot of this stuff Really gets argued out. Some of the issues are somewhat less abstruse, maybe than mm-hmm. than those that attach to the undertaking of, of narrative fiction. There was a one thing I wrote about. I forget which of the two pieces it was in. Maybe this summer was uh, Scarlett Johansson, the, the actress, was going to portray a transgender man in a in a film, and trans activists insisted that the role should go to a trans actor. She subsequently uh, w- withdrew. And I think the question of whether this is sort of simply a a workplace, a marketplace share issue Mm -hmm. that we've been excluded in the past, Mm -hmm. trans people, and we deserve these jobs, or does it go deeper than that? Is the implication that an actor really can't adequately summon the experience unless he or she belongs to the group whose experience is being portrayed?
7: That's really interesting because when I read your example about Scarlett Johansson playing a trans man, like the thing that really came came to mind for me was the whole problem of representation, where like if representation in contemporary media was completely an even playing field i don't think this would even be like a problem like people wouldn't be upset about it but the fact is that there are so few trans actresses and actors who actually are able to get these roles in the first place that when the whole narrative like it would make sense to to include somebody who's actually lived that experience um kind of portray portray a trans person on their own terms and it's taken by you know like a completely like a very well regarded like a famous actress. It upsets people because the fact is that there aren't it's not like there aren't trans actors and trans actresses like they do exist and I think when it comes to sensitive topics like this it upsets people because representation is so uneven. If the role at question was of a trans person it would like the, the role should necessarily probably go to somebody who is actually disenfranchised and would be able to represent it Better.
5: So, Nicole, if I understand you right, the, the the claim is one about representation, and not so much about whether it's possible for a trans actor to understand, or for a, for a cisgendered actor to understand the experience of a of a trans actor, a trans person or character, well enough to play that part convincingly. Because if that's the claim... That's uh, an important point, right? If that's the claim, it seems to me there's a problem. That can't be the only claim. It has to be that claim plus something else. Mm. Otherwise you could reverse it. And nobody's willing to do that. Nobody would say that we shouldn't allow a trans actor to play a cisgendered part, or a gay actor to play a straight part. Right. Nobody's saying that. No, and no. I don't think anybody wants to say that. And yet, the logic seems to compel that, unless we complicate it in some way by saying that this also involves, <laughs> as you say, imbalances of power or questions of representation.
7: Sure, that's that's exactly the point. Like, I think at surface level, a lot of these critiques seem kind of trivial, right? Like, I know you 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 describe it, Rand, as like misguided, right? Like, anger that could be directed in more fruitful areas. But I think in a lot of ways, like, anger over this casting, for instance, calls into questions of violence that takes place against trans people on a daily basis. The fact that trans people are discriminated against in the job markets, and for, like, one instance where a trans person could actually take this role, it is really more an issue of representation because they aren't aren't represented enough. If there were, if trans people and cis people were being, like, cast on, like, an equal basis, like, correspondingly, like, that would not be an issue, but the fact is that they do face these barriers. So it felt misguided for them to go and place like a like a well-regarded actress in this role
6: Ren does that make sense to you yes it does I mean I think again uh Nicole Ann's piece helped me partly through a certain little bit of apples and oranges or or maybe if there was something that was like half apple and half orange but (laughs) I I think was sort of sometimes when when you're looking from one angle at a topic and then someone provides a response that allows you to turn and see it at a slightly different angle so that you're still seeing what you saw before, but you're seeing something else as well. Mm-hmm. I think the, the point, Matt, that you were just trying to distinguish, which is really between the implication that there's something inherently impossible about the prospect, about the task of trying to escape one's own identity category, the difference between that as a notion and the notion that systemic inequities in sort of access to the means and the venues uh, and the structures of cultural production needs to be changed is an important distinction. Mm
7: -hmm. To say that there doesn't have to be some concession on behalf of white people to kind of take the backseat a little bit more would be a little bit like a little unrealistic because like... There is the problem of like oversaturation of the market, almost to say, where if there are so many people producing like the same narrative, people in positions of power are necessarily going to have more access to like markets that are willing to listen to that. And in order to like spotlight the voices and the production of artists of color and people of color, it really takes like a willful act on behalf of these producers as well to like not continue to try to speak on their behalf. And I think I get to this point towards the end of my article.
5: Rand, thank All you right. very much for thank your
6: time. Thank you so yeah. uh, Hey, this was great. and Nicole Ann, so great to meet you. Listen, I just wanted to say I love your piece. It's <laughs> terrific. The best thing I've ever seen written by an intern at Commonweal. And uh, <laughs> and, and I, I completely appreciated getting it. Uh, and oh, it was very helpful you. to me.
7: Thank you so much, Rand. I really appreciate it. And it's great to meet you as well. Thanks.
6: <laughs> okay. Hey, Matt, thanks so much. Thank you.
0: Rand's piece, Contending Aims, Contending Claims, originally ran in July. Nicole Ann's piece, Time to Listen, originally ran in September. Rand has just responded to Nicole Ann, and you can find all three pieces on our website. This is likely a conversation that will be continuing. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by associate publisher Megan Ritchie and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. David Dalt did the editing. We'll be back soon with the next episode of the Commonwealth Podcast. If you like what you've heard, we have extended versions of these segments either through our website or on your favorite podcast feed. This is Dominic Preziosi. Thanks for listening.